Did you know for thousands of years, certainly hundreds of years, probably about 1,500 years, millions of Christians have celebrated the Christmas holidays, but those aren't the, it's not the day after Thanksgiving and it's not the college football bowl season. It's what's called the 12 days of Christmas. And it begins on Christmas Day, December the 25th, and it ends 12 days later on January the 5th. Christians historically have set aside these 12 days to celebrate the birth of Christ. Now, you say, what is the significance of 12 days? Where did they get that in the Bible? Well, it's not in the Bible, but here's where they got it. Back then, they assumed that it took the wise men 12 days to travel from wherever it was they lived in the east all the way to Bethlehem where Jesus was living, and that's where they worshiped. And so the, the theologians, the pastors, the, the leaders of the church 1,500 years ago had councils and meetings, and they said, we believe it took those wise men 12 days to get to Bethlehem, and so for 12 days we should celebrate Christmas. Now, the fact is, it probably took the wise men much longer than 12 days. Jesus was probably much older than 12 days of age when they got there. I say that because, and we'll see it a little bit later, the passage we're going to be reading says that Jesus was a young child. It no longer calls him a baby. And it says that his family, he, Mary, and Joseph, were now living in a house, not a stable. We also know that King Herod had all the baby boys in Bethlehem who were two years old and under killed because he was trying to kill Jesus and he wanted to make sure he got him. So he had all the boys killed like that. So Jesus could have been as old as two years of age. We don't know when the wise men left wherever it was they lived in the east. We don't know how long it took them to get there. We don't know how old Jesus was when they arrived. But we do know this. Church historians set aside these 12 days and they said the birth of Christ is so important that for 12 days all of our focus should be on God in the Bible. And on the 13th day, January the 6th, which is known as the Day of Epiphany, that's when the wise men arrived. That's when, you know, sometimes you hear somebody say, I had an epiphany. What does that mean? They had a, a revelation. They had a thought. Well, when the wise men arrived in Bethlehem and they saw Jesus, for the first time, Jesus, as a little boy, revealed himself to non-Jewish people, to the Gentiles, because these guys came from the East. They weren't Jews. And so December the 6th, is celebrated as the Day of Epiphany. Now, I don't know how much you know about that. In our Baptist tradition, we don't seem to talk much about as much about the Day of Epiphany or the 12 days of Christmas, but I can assure you this, if we were Episcopalian, if we had grown up Catholic, if maybe we were Lutheran or Methodist, or even some other Protestant denominations, we might celebrate this. You know, when we think of the 12 days of Christmas, what do we think about? We think about the longest Christmas song that was ever written, right? This year when our family got together for Christmas, uh, part of our group, which will go nameless, had gotten together and practiced and rehearsed, and they sang for us, for the rest of us, the 12 days of Christmas. And three hours later, when it was over with, we woke up and we clapped for them because it's a long, long song. I want to just say this, and I, I want to get back to this thing about the day of Epiphany, but this is interesting to me. Maybe, maybe it'll be interesting to you, maybe it won't. But the, the background on that song, The Twelve Days of Christmas, is this. More than likely, the, here's why that song was written. It was written in the late 1700s, and Christians living in a particular place in England were being persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. And they had been told, if you keep proclaiming Christ, you're going to pay a price for that. 
And so some Christians got together and they said, you know, they've told us we can't proclaim our, they may arrest us, they may kill us, they, who knows what they might do, but let's put together a Christmas song. And that way at Christmas time, we can sing it to each other. It's kind of a song written in code. Nobody really knows what all this means, but they said, we know what it means. And maybe some of the non-Christians who hear us singing this, they will figure out the hidden message. And so the 12 days of Christmas uh, is, is, is very symbolic song. You know, it, it starts, well, it starts with day one. That's what makes that song go long. Day one, then you always have to go all the way back down. But let's just take it from the top, day 12, and we'll just take it down to the bottom, day one. Each one of the gifts that is mentioned in the 12 days of Christmas has some spiritual significance. Something about God, Jesus, the Bible, some spiritual significance. So let's just walk down and see if you've ever thought about this. Because I never had until I really got to studying it for this sermon. So on the, tw- on the 12th day of Christmas, my true love gave to me. Then what does it say? 12 drummers drumming. What does that mean? The 12 pieces of doctrine in the Apostles' Creed. 11 pipers piping, the 11 faithful disciples. 10, 10 lords of leaping. What is that? The 10 commandments. I forgot the 10 commandments, right? Nine ladies dancing, the nine fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Eight maids of milking, the eight beatitudes that Jesus gave in the Sermon on the Mount. Seven seven swans of swimming, the seven gifts of the Spirit. Read about that in Isaiah chapter 11. Six geese laying, the six days of creation, which form the foundation of the world as we know it. Six geese of lay. Five golden rings, the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch. Four calling birds. Now, what's the significance of that? of that? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The four gospel writers calling on people to repent of their sins and trust Christ. Three French hens, love, joy. No, no, no. Faith, hope, love. Two turtle doves. The Old Testament, the New Testament, and a partridge in a pear tree. Jesus dying on that tree to pay for our sins. And so Christians in England sang that song, the 12 days of Christmas, and they were singing to each other, and they were reminding each other about God and about the Bible and about the birth and the death of Jesus Christ. And so I say that to say the 12 days of Christmas, not just the song, but the 12 actual days in the history of the church have been a big deal. Now, December 25th, the birth of Christ. That's day one. Day two, December 26th, St. Stephen's Day. They celebrate the first martyr of the church. Day three, John the Apostle, the Apostle of Love. They celebrate a day of love. Jump to day eight, New Year's Day. They celebrate Mary, the mother of Jesus. Day 12, January the 5th, they call that Epiphany Eve. So this would have been last Wednesday was January 5th, Epiphany Eve. Last Thursday was January the 6th. And what were Christians celebrating all over the world? They were celebrating the day of Epiphany. And yet we don't know about it in our Baptist tradition because we don't talk about that. But it's a very important day. And for the last several years... Since I myself learned about the day of Epiphany, I have celebrated that in my heart. The day the wise men bowed down to worship Jesus. We might say it this way. The day the wise men got saved. Because think about this. When the wise men worshiped Jesus, they brought him three gifts. Let's see if you're familiar with that part of the story. The first gift was what? Gold and then frankincense and then symbolic gifts. Gold, the gift you would bring to a king. 
Frankincense was the incense that the priests burned in the temple when they were offering up their sacrifices to God. And then the myrrh was an anointing oil that was used when people had died to embalm their bodies. And so when these wise men came to Jesus and they knelt down, whether he was 12 days or two years of age, they knelt at the feet of Jesus and they're giving him gold and frankincense and myrrh. What were they saying? They were saying gold is a gift for a king. Frankincense tells us that you're the priest. You're the one who represents us between sinful man and and holy God. And then the myrrh says that you're the savior, that one day you will die on that cross to pay for our sin. Now you say, John, did the wise men understand all that when they gave Jesus those gifts? No, they did not. But friend, they weren't saved because of what they understood. They were saved because they placed what faith they had in the person of Jesus Christ, just like we're saved today. We're not saved because we understand everything about God. We're saved because with childlike faith, we trust Christ to save us. Go, frankincense and myrrh. Jesus is king, he's priest, and he is savior. And all of that is what we should be celebrating each year on the day of Epiphany, January the 6th. Think of it this way. December the 25th is the birth of Christ. January January the 6th represents the new birth of the wise men. So it causes us to think, if we're thinking rightly, it causes us to think about that time in our lives when we received Jesus Christ, when we got saved. And that's what I want us to think about in this service today. I want you to think back to your salvation experience, maybe long ago, maybe more recently. And I want us to see if we can draw some parallels between our new birth experience and the new birth experience of the wise men. Now, let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 2, because this is where our scripture is today. I've called the message, The Forgotten Part of the Christmas Story. The Forgotten Part of the Christmas Story. And I want us to think today about our salvation, our day of epiphany, when Jesus became real to us, when we were born again. And the first thing I want us to see today as we think about that, as we think about the wise men, we remember how we were led by God. When you got saved, no matter how old you were or when it happened, the only reason you got saved is because God led you to Jesus Christ. In John chapter 6, Jesus said, no one can come to the Father, no one can come to me unless he is drawn by the Father who sent me. So the Father has to draw us to Jesus Christ. Now, Matthew chapter 2, look in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. And so these wise men living in the Orient somewhere made it to Jerusalem, but, and then they were going to Bethlehem. But how did they get there? Because God led them by a star. In other words, God put a special star in the sky, and God said to the wise men, you follow that star. That star is going to lead you to the Messiah. That star is going to lead you to the Savior of the world. And so I'm saying to you today, when we think about our own salvation experience, when I think about when I got saved and then later when I came to the full assurance of my salvation, I can't think about that without first thinking about how God led me to the person of Jesus Christ. Now, he didn't lead me by a star in the sky. No, he led me by his word and he led me by his spirit. But you know what he also did? He also led me by some many people in my life 
who, were, who, have, who, who have become my stars. You know, the stars in my life are not celebrities or, or entertainers or politicians. The stars in my life are the people who led me to faith in Jesus Christ. As I thought about that this past week, certainly with me and, and, and with you most likely, it begins with my parents. When I was very young, they were teaching me to trust Jesus, and they were teaching me to love God. I have a Bible in my home. I nearly brought it today to show it to you. I, di- I didn't think you'd probably be interested in it, so I didn't bring it. But when I was born, my parents had gotten a little Bible, very small, like a Bible you could put in your pocket. And my mother had that with her in the hospital. And I read last night the note that she wrote me many years later, and she said, John, this is the first Bible that I ever read to you from. And she said, when you were born and we were there in the hospital and the nurse would bring you in and you would be with me for a while, then the nurse would take you back and then to the nursery and then you would come back to me. She said, every time you came to me, I opened this little Bible and I read to you from this Bible. And she said, in fact, as you got a little bit older, she said, you literally teethed on this Bible. And I, and I, I was, I was going to show, maybe you are, maybe I should have brought that. Some, but I, the, it even has my my teeth marked. So, I mean, I was really biting down. I was hungry when I was biting on that. But I looked at that and I thought, you know, the stars of my life are not some athlete. My, parent, my mom, she gave me that Bible and she said, teeth on that. And at, a, at an age when I didn't even understand anything, somehow in the spirit world, I was being taught that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. If you're about to have a baby, that wouldn't be a bad thing to do. Go buy a little pocket Bible and do that with your child. But I think as I grew up, my Sunday school teachers when I was very young, Miss Margie Sarton, my, one of my first ministers, uh, Dick DeMerchant. I think about getting older in life, my teenage years. I think about my student minister, David Akers. I think about some of the coaches, Coach Doug Evans, Coach Don Poe. These names don't mean anything to you, but they're the stars of my life. They were the ones, among, along with many others, Robert Van Winkle, one of the greatest teachers I've ever had, who pointed me to Jesus. And so today, as we think, now I know it's not the 6th of January, it's the 9th, but still, we're in the spirit of the day of Epiphany. We look back to that time in our life when we, like the wise men, knelt at the feet of Jesus and we said, Lord, we don't understand it all, but we believe that you're God, you're King of Kings. We believe that you're the priest that represents us to God the Father, and we believe that you're the Savior of the world, and we trust you with all of our heart. And I'm telling you, we can't look back on that experience without thinking about the stars God used to lead us to the feet of Jesus. And so today, what do we think about? We think, first of all, about how we were led by God. But secondly, we think about how, as we were contemplating being saved, as we were contemplating doing business with God, as we were contemplating confessing and repenting of our sins, we think about how, how we were opposed by the devil. I'll tell you this about the devil. The devil never wants anybody to get saved. Chris said in the earlier part of the worship, he said that it's been a tough week for some of the people on the platform. I don't know everything people on this platform have been through this week. I know what some of them have been through. Some have been very sick, and others have probably had different problems. But it's not surprising because God or the devil will try to do anything he can to prevent people from coming to Jesus, and he will try to do everything he can to prevent us from leading others to Jesus. Now, when we get to verse number three, we read about a man named Herod. And Herod was the king of the Jews at the time. 
Herod was a wicked, vile, ungodly man. And I'll tell you something else about Herod. He's the first example we have in the New Testament of an antichrist. Now, we know from our study of Revelation that the antichrist with the capital A will not be revealed until the great tribulation out there in the future after the rapture of the church, that the antichrist will emerge at that time. But the Bible says in 1 John that there are many antichrists. There's the spirit of Antichrist in the world today, and Herod is the first example of that in the New Testament. Let's read. When Herod the king heard this, heard what? He heard that they were going to visit the king of the Jews, and Herod was thinking, wait a second, I'm the king of the Jews, and so Herod was threatened by Jesus. So what did he want to do? He said, he was troubled. All Jerusalem with him was troubled. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. He quotes here out of Micah 5. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. In other words, Herod says to the wise men, hey, when you get there and you find this baby, Send back word to me because I want to come to Bethlehem and I want to worship him too. And I'm sure the wise men thought, well, that sure is nice of Herod. Here he is, this political leader, and he's excited that the Messiah has been born and he wants to come worship the Messiah too. And it sounded so good, but the problem was it was a lie. Herod's words didn't reflect his heart. The reason he wanted to know where Jesus was wasn't so that he could worship Jesus. He wanted to know where he was so that he could kill Jesus. And that's why he had all the babies in Bethlehem, the boys, two years old and younger, all killed, trying to kill the Messiah. I'm saying Herod is the first example of the spirit of Antichrist in all of the New Testament. He did everything he could to destroy Jesus. Now, in the day in which we live, we see the same thing happening. Nothing has changed. I mean, what was is, I mean, the, the, the people haven't changed. The, nothing is, di- I mean, the culture's changed, tradition's changed, but in our, in our core, people are the same. The devil certainly hasn't changed. And he opposes anybody who is trying to get to the feet of Jesus so that they can be saved. Lots of examples, lots of ways he does that. Even in a service like this today, there's, there's some who say, I, I really feel like I need to be saved, but it's for you, it's pride, or maybe it's fear, or maybe you say, I don't understand everything. And so it's something like that. You know, one of the things that I believe the devil uses, now what I'm about to mention is not bad in and of itself, but one of the things the devil uses in our American culture, and maybe for the last 50 years, it's been one of his most effective tools is the NFL football games on Sunday afternoon. Now, I'm not against the NFL. I'm as big a sports fan as anybody in the room. In fact, I played high school ball. I would have played college and professionally if if I'd only been bigger, better, stronger, and faster. That was the only thing keeping me back, or I would have gone all the way. But those four issues limited me to high school play, okay? So I didn't go. I love high school. I love all, all football. But think about what's happened in our culture in the last 50 years. It's interesting. 
If you saw the movie Concussion with Will Smith in there, I did not see the movie. I'm familiar with the movie. I read about it. I read an excerpt that somewhere in that movie, there's a statement that somebody made, and listen to this statement. They said, the NFL now owns a day that used to belong to the church. Now, you think about that. For the last 50 years, however long the NFL, Super Bowl 56 coming out, and there were some seasons before that, before they had the merger. So for the last, say, 60 years, all across America, on Sunday mornings, people have gone to church, churches like this, churches in other places, larger, smaller churches, and they've heard the gospel preached. They've heard the Bible taught. They've heard sin exposed, and they've heard Jesus lifted up, and many have been saved, and others have thought, well, you know, I, I feel a conviction. I feel the Holy Spirit. Something's happening to me, but, but I need to think about this. I'm not ready to make that commitment. I'm not ready to make that decision, and so they walk out the door. They get in their car, still thinking about what they've heard about. They go home. They get the remote control. They turn the television on. And for the rest of the day, it's football. Now, what is happening there? I'll tell you exactly what's happening. What's happening is what Jesus said would happen in Matthew chapter 13. He said that in life, there will always be people who will sow the seed of the Word of God. Preachers, teachers, parents, grandparents, mainly Jesus himself, sowing the seed of the Word of God. But he said some of that seed is going to fall on a hard path. And when it falls, it's not going to take root. But it will take root if it'll just stay there long enough and there'll be some rain and the soil can be softened and the seed can take root. But Jesus said, here's what's going to happen to the seed on the hard path. Before it can take root, the devil is going to come along and pick that seed up off the hard path and it'll never take root. And that's what the NFL has done to us on Sundays. People have heard the gospel, but before the seed could take root, before they could apply the sermon, they're home watching the game and their whole mind and their whole psyche and their whole being is involved in those games on Sunday afternoon. There are a lot of ways. What I'm saying is when a person is in the process of going to Jesus so that they can be saved, there are a lot of things the devil does to try to stop that and oppose that and prevent that. One of the things the devil does and uses, certainly this is true in our culture today, at an alarming rate. We saw it happen in Europe 150 years ago. We're seeing it happen in America today. We're seeing a form of religion that is developing that's not got anything to do with God. And we're seeing spirituality out there that's developing that has nothing to do with Jesus. It's just this whole idea of faith. Sometimes you'll hear somebody say, when they're going through a hard time or something, you hear a celebrity or somebody or maybe just a normal person, they'll say something like this, well, I just rely on my faith. Well, that sounds good. I mean, I rely, but what does this even mean? I mean, is it their Christian faith, their Muslim faith, their Hindu faith, their Buddhist faith? Their faith in them, I rely on my faith. What is that? Friend, I want to say clearly today, when I'm going through a hard time or when I'm going through an easy time, I don't rely on my faith. I rely on Jesus, who's the object of my faith. Your faith is only as good as the object. Rely on my faith. I wouldn't trust my faith for anything. My faith is weak and frail. I, listen, I read this last week. It's interesting. In America, 63% of adults believe, 63, 63 out of 100, Believe, quote, having faith matters more than which faith you have. Now, let that sink in. 63% of the people running around our country, you're getting close to 200 million Americans that say, hey, having faith 
is more important than which faith you have. That's dangerous. 60% of Americans who claim to be born again, let that sink in. 60% of Americans who claim to be born again say Muhammad, Buddha, and Jesus are all valid paths to God. What is it? 60% of Christians are saying that. What it, it, is a, it is a religion without reality. It is, a, it is a spirituality that is not grounded in truth. William Booth, a well-known Methodist preacher in the late part of the 1800s, early 1900s, he and his wife founded the Salvation Army that is now founded in England. It's now all over the world. We have a Salvation Army here in Pasadena. Our church supports the Salvation Army every month. They help people who are going through hard times. It's a tremendous ministry. One of the greatest quotes I ever read in my life was by William Booth, who interestingly enough died in 1912. So he's been gone for, near, for a little over 100 years. But some, at some point before he died, here's what, he's, here's what he was noticing in England in the early 1900s, at the turn of that century. And here was his concern for those in our day. He said, I consider that the chief danger which confronts the coming century, now listen to this, will be religion without the Holy Ghost, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation, in quotes, without regeneration. And then he said, I fear that there will be politics without God and heaven without hell. Now, isn't that true? I mean, he's prophetic. He spoke that over a hundred years ago. And what do we have in the day in which we live? We have exactly what he feared. We have religion, but we don't have anybody talking about the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit. No, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying nobody, but you don't have it like you used to have it. Christianity without Christ. Christianity in the mind of many has become a religion of doing good deeds, and that's all there is to it. And if you do enough, you go to heaven. And there's no Christ. There's no preaching of Christ. Forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, and heaven without hell. That is what is happening. Somebody texted me an article last week, and it's the most interesting thing. Recently in Europe, over 400 churches have been closed. You say, well, covid did it? No, this was before COVID. I mean, COVID has affected church attendance all over the world. And that's one reason we wanted to get over with so everybody could get back to church and new people come. But before COVID, 400 churches in Europe were closed. Why? I'll tell you one of the reasons why. Because liberalism in Europe that permeated the colleges and the universities and the seminaries made its way into the pulpit. And instead of a man getting up on Sunday, looking a congregation in the eye and opening his Bible and saying, thus saith the Lord, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus died on that cross and we need to repent and be saved. Instead of preaching that, what were they preaching? They were preaching some do-good religion that had little or no confidence in the Word of God. They were writing off Adam and Eve as mythological figures. They were questioning the flood along with the first part of the whole book of Genesis. Maybe Abraham didn't really sacrifice Isaac. Maybe Jonah wasn't really swallowed by a fish. Maybe Jesus really didn't die. Maybe it was just a lesson. And as they watered the gospel down, they emptied the churches out, and the churches have gotten closed. And that's what, it's at. what, what William Booth said 100 years ago has become a reality today. 
And I'm saying it's all a work of Satan. What is he doing? He is opposing the preaching of the gospel. Why are these people having problems on the platform? Because God doesn't want them up here lifting up Jesus. He's opposing people being saved, and it's a very sad thing. But we think about it in our own life, maybe some of the obstacles and hurdles that we had to get over to come to Jesus Christ. And then today, we remember not only that, not only how we were led by God and how we were opposed by the devil, but we remember how we were saved at the feet of Jesus. Now, let's see these wise men. Look in verse 9. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child. See, house, not stable. Young child, not baby. With Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented to him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Their way of saying, you're king, you're priest, and you're the Savior. And that's when they were saved. And so we remember that time in our lives when we did what? When we joined the wise men and we knelt down at the feet of Jesus and we got saved. Do you remember a time in your life when you, when you did that? It's interesting. Yesterday we had a memorial service here in our church for one of the most faithful men we've ever known, a man named Felton Hayes. Felton and his wife Martha joined our church in the summer of 1990. They've been active members here, they along, along with their daughters, for all that time. Daughter's grown and moved now away. Felton developed ALS several months ago. That debilitating disease wreaked havoc in his body. A few days ago, it completely consumed and destroyed his body, and Felton died. Now, we know that he went to be with the Lord, but his body nonetheless died. And so yesterday, we were in the chapel. We had his memorial service. We were celebrating his life, reflecting on his life. My dad brought the message. I had a part. Others spoke. One of the people who spoke was a man named Denny Autry. Back in the 1980s, Dr. Autry pastored Alta Vista Baptist Church here in Pasadena up on Spencer Highway. If you're Pasadena and you know where Alta Vista is near Casa Ole up there near Strawberry. And he was sharing yesterday his memories of Felton, and he said, you know, my best memory of Felton, he shared some good stories, but he said, my best memory of Felton took place back in the 1980s. He said, we were having a revival at Alta Vista, and Felton was not really saved and not really plugged into the church, but his wife Martha was. She's a devoted Christian. And before the revival, Martha and the pastor's wife began praying for Felton's salvation. And they begin to pray, God, soften his heart. God, he's not grown up in the church. He's never made a commitment to Christ. This is all new to him, but God, he needs to be saved. And so work in his heart. They were praying that the seed that had been planted would take root. Well, they had a revival, and Felton came to that revival. And one night at the end of the revival, at the end of the sermon, the, the, the guest preacher, the evangelist, gave the invitation. He said, if anybody needs to be saved, come forward. You can be saved now. That night, Felton walked down that aisle, and Felton got saved. Later, he got baptized. Denny was sharing that story yesterday, and he said, you know the thing that is interesting to me about that, and those of us who knew Felton know this part to be true, he said Felton was a very quiet, very shy, very reserved man. He'd be the guy that would sit at the back of the room, kind of mind his own business, draw no attention to himself. And he said for Felton to come forward during that revival in front of everybody, And make that decision was much harder for him 
than it would be. I mean, it's not easy for anybody, but for some people, it's super hard. But he made this point. He said, even though that was hard for Felton, he overcame that and he did it anyway. I thought about that all afternoon yesterday and I thought about this sermon. I thought about how Satan does everything he can. Like this morning, the gospel has been preached. The seed has been sown. And I'm praying that it's taking root. But I also know this. While I'm up here working and the Holy Spirit is in this room working, also in this room, there is the devil himself opposing, trying to prevent anybody here or anybody watching at home who's not yet made that decision to prevent them from doing so. I'm saying to you today, if you have never been to the feet of Jesus and in your own words, in your own way, knelt down, whether you did it physically or in your heart, and said, God, I don't understand everything, but I know I have sinned. I know I need forgiveness. I know that's why Jesus died. And even though I don't understand everything, with the faith that I have, I do believe that he's king, that he's priest, and that he's savior. And I ask him and I trust him to save me right now. If you've never done that, there were several in the first service who did. There have been a lot in recent weeks who have. But I can't help but believe in this service right now. There are people here who need to make the same commitment.